This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots and a Happy New Year to all our listeners. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Fraser Nelson and Isabel Hardman. We're discussing uh, the rail strikes, Leo Varadkar's comments and Prince Harry's interview. But let's start with uh, talking about the industrial action and Fraser, this is our first edition post uh, Forsyth. Tell us what's happening this week with the rail unions going on strike. Well, if I was James Forsyth getting my feet under the, the <laughs> desk uh, as political secretary number 10, I'd probably be wanting to resign right now when you look at these are a pretty full on. It's funny, but when James was political editor, he wrote article after article about what a miserable winter it was going to be. And he was right, as he'll be now be finding out firsthand. So you've got um, today 40,000 network rail staff and 14 of the train companies uh, have got strikes going on. No trains into central London. Um, and they were... They, they were offered 9% over two years. It turned it down. And then on Thursday, we've got as left for train drivers strikes. But there is sort of sign that it's very difficult to tell, by the way, when you're looking at these things, which way the conflicts are going. But there is some indication that the government is holding firm. I mean, Rishi Sunak's strategy from the get-go was not to get involved. So he would be saying, look, this isn't anything to do with government. This is between Network Rail, the, uh, uh, the company, and its workers. We're not going to get involved. And the same thing is true with, with the train companies. They're represented by the Rail Delivery Group, not the government. And all the time, the unions would be trying to drag the ministers into it. And I, here we are now on the 3rd of January, and Rishi Sunak has yet to be dragged into it. So if his objective was to stay out, then that is working. Um, and I don't really think he's facing that much public pressure to break his stance. And there are so many other strikes planned. We've got the nurses are planning a couple more strikes. We've got the border force um, are planning more strikes as well. Mind you, when they, as I found out for myself when I flew into Gatwick a few days ago, the, the, the military are doing a fantastic job, really. And that was a bit of a, a shock because... If it turns out that there's a young Royal Navy lady who took my passport and she was saying, look, this really isn't difficult. I don't know what all the fuss is about. So that's not the sort of thing you want if you're a striker. You want there to be bedlam. But in fact, there has been order and speedy progress at the airports. There is less order on the trains. But the bigger problem is that people don't need much of an excuse now not to come into work and to stay at home. The country is less disrupted, shall we say, because... They don't need. Um, they don't need an excuse here in the office. How many, roughly, James? Would you say what proportion of people are in today? I'd say about four out of five, so eighty percent. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, people will. They can drive and they, they can do other things. Um, but also, you're used to staying at home, spending a Friday off. So I think the power of disruption is less. I think than they might have feared at the beginning of this conflict. Yeah, and Ross Clark makes a good point for the Spectator website today, which is that actually, unlike in the 1970s, when you needed the trains to transport coal to power the energy across the country, you don't need that now. So it's sort of changed. Isabel, there was the time splash today was reporting that millions could shun trains forever. And an anonymous government source suggesting that actually the rail, um, by going on strike, the rail unions are actually potentially damaging their own cause with three quarters of rail travel, what it was pre-pandemic. Do you think perhaps with a sort of shift in Mick Lynch's rhetoric, for instance, there is a sign perhaps that the rail unions could be backing down from this or recognising that there needs to be an end game in sight? There have been noises again over the past few days, haven't there, that uh, there could be a, a landing zone 
on a deal which I think any of those of us who've been watching the the Brexit fights over the past few years uh, will know the landing zone is it, it may well be visible but you can end up in a sort of Heathrow style holding pattern over the landing zone for, for quite a long time and uh, I'm not sure whether that deal deal is close or not but that you know that millions will shun rail um, forever warning is a sort of classic strike negotiating tactic from the government but as Fraser says it's going it's probably going to work because the the, the way the, the the workplace has changed as a result of covid means that you're much more likely to disrupt people if you have a strike at the weekends when they're going to go and see family or over christmas as we've seen uh, when they want to go and see their families or go to you know football matches or, or, or races or, or whatever and so the the rail unions aren't as powerful as as they used to be and it's not like the health service where you know people aren't going to shun hospitals in favor of sort of you know dying at home or something like that although we have seen uh, stories in the past few days of people trying to do sort of DIY medical treatment because they're worried about going into hospitals and i think that the point that Fraser makes about Rishi Sunak being able to stay out of the the transport strikes um is really important and he's also in a way that is still totally inconvenient to him as prime minister given some cover by the other strikes uh, and the other turmoil in other aspects of public life. And that, you know, largely is as a result of what's going on in the NHS, where the Prime Minister is under huge pressure to say something that shows he has, as his opponents will say, a grip on the situation. I'm not sure anyone has ever really felt they've had a grip on the NHS, um, other than perhaps uh, Simon Stevens when he was chief executive. But... uh, you know, there's a huge amount of political pressure that the government isn't really managing to rise to in an effective way to show that it's got a handle over the pressure, a handle on the pressures that uh, accident and emergency departments are, are facing at the moment. And so that's where the, all the attention is being diverted. You say that Richard Sunak has so far managed to stay out of the rail strikes. Is there not a case that as this month goes on, and potentially teachers taking industrial action as well, balloting their members, that Rishi will have to get drawn into this more and this line about the government not getting involved in industrial disputes just simply can't hold? They are going to hold onto that line as tenaciously as they possibly can because they see it as being a stack of dominoes that if you knock one over on you know, nurses or teachers who people have quite a lot of sympathy with, then the less deserving or less supported or you know however you want to see it striking groups will say well hang on a second what about us and that's the the fear of Rishi Sunak it's it's not just that one you know giving one group like nurses a pay rise would be inflationary it's actually that the government would not be able to afford the impact politically of a pay rise for one particular group of workers because it would be impossible to hold the line but I think it it is going to be difficult to say, no, we're not getting involved here when you've got continued misery stretching through the next few months. And obviously, that's one news story today. But the other, perhaps, is these surprising comments, maybe, that Leo Varadkar, the Irish Prime Minister, has said about admitting that mistakes were made on all sides in Brexit. Fraser, you had a ringside seat and all of that. Are you perhaps surprised by the timing or what the uh, Dear Sector is now saying today? 
Well, not so much. I mean, we were actually hearing during the Liz Trust days that there was going to be an agreement reached um, between the EU and the UK on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it was quite easy to see why both sides should reach that. It's with nobody's interests for the protocol to become controversial. So you do not want to see, as you do now see, protesters regularly protesting against the protocol. You have a situation of the Northern Ireland Assembly where not a single elected unionist backs the protocol. So you cannot have, under the principles of a Good Friday Agreement, a settlement which one side wants but the other side completely hates. So you need to dial it down. Now We also found out that 20% of all the checks made in the EU's external border are taking place between Northern Ireland and the UK. So when it was agreed, Boris Johnson hoped it would be a near-invisible border. It could have been. But what we then found out was that these checks were being applied vexatiously and with great um, with great effort. So you would have like machines that were being taken from Scotland to Northern Ireland that had to be like hosed down so there'd be no earth on them. And, you know, incredibly small things that created friction. As a result, trade between Northern Ireland and Ireland um, almost doubled and trade between Northern Ireland and the UK has correspondingly gone down. So the unionist communities can see in the Northern Ireland Protocol a way of binding them more into the Ireland um, ecosystem by stealth. And they think this is unfair and they're protesting. And ultimately, there is going to be a referendum on whether they want the Northern Ireland um, Protocol to continue. And you don't want to lose that referendum. Now, Leo Varadkar, of course, he was an opponent of Brexit. He was quite a dogged negotiator for the Irish. But now that Brexit has happened... I'm not sure that even he wishes there to be friction. He doesn't really want bad relations. He doesn't want the protocol to become an issue. It's there, and it was the price which Boris Johnson, one of the many concessions that Boris Johnson made over over Brexit. But do you really need so many so many checks? So I think that um, Varadkar's comments come ahead of what I'm still expecting to be some kind of deal over the protocol. To simply dial down the checks, I'm not quite sure what Britain offer in exchange, but this is getting in the way of EU-UK relations, and now the Brexit's happened, the UK is offering to be the EU's greatest single ally, and I think, to me, it makes a lot of logic for the offer to be accepted, so I'm hoping for a new year breakthrough in the protocol. And I think that with the deadline of January the, 20, January the 19th is for when a deal has to be reached between parties on the, the Northern Irish Protocol. And Steve Baker is currently circulating a paper in government around how those, those two issues of checks on goods coming and the ECJ's role in trade disputes can be sorted out. Um, is, is the timing surprising for you at all? I mean, obviously, this coming against, up against the anniversary, the forthcoming anniversary, uh, the 25th anniversary since the Good Friday Agreements in 1998, which will be April. Do you see perhaps this is a sort of sign perhaps that the um, the Irish Prime Minister wants to work with London on Storm- and trying to get Stormont back up and running again? Yeah, I think there is, is an anxiety that it would be a, a, a terrible backdrop for the the anniversary to have a, a, a non-functioning executive with, you know, assembly members having had their pay docked and a, a sense of crisis again um, in Northern Ireland. And I think, you know, the, the, the comments that the Taoiseach has made are really interesting. It's quite easy to say, well, you know, it doesn't actually matter so much what the view of the Irish is. It's actually the, you know, the view of the European negotiators. But the point that Varadka has made is that, that he thinks that that's also of the view that Ursula von der Leyen and, and Shevkovich also hold. Um, and so that there are really hopeful sounds here. I was talking to 
some of the, the British government side who've been involved really closely in these protocol negotiations. And the two things they think are the most important to there being uh, a resolution and then a restoration of um, power-sharing government at Stormont. One is goodwill, and there's been a lot more of that over the past few weeks and months between the different sides and an attempt really for a, you know, a bit of kissing and making up, I think, from all sides, including um, today. And the second is fatigue and actually all sides just getting really fed up of this situation. And that's when you often find that there's a deal. That's why, you know, in a lot of different negotiating settings, these negotiations go on late into the night because people agree on things when they're tired and need the toilet. And I think we're, we're at that stage now with the, with the protocol. Yeah, it was interesting. Steve Baker, who, of course, made those comments at Tory party conference about mistakes made um, by his own party, has retweeted Leo Varadkar's comments today. I've seen them retweeted five times from his account. So perhaps there's a kind of sense of uh, good, goodwill facing out. Uh, and finally, this Sunday, we're going to see ITV's interview with Prince Harry, conducted by his um, friend, Tom Bradbury. Uh, Fraser, will you be watching it? I'm not a great fan of soap operas, real life or otherwise. And I really, you know, this uh, the verbal contortions where you go to, to try to come up with a, a new line. I, I, I don't know. I think there are just so many more interesting things happening right now. Insofar as uh, I, I'm a monarchist, insofar as I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that we do not have a politician running this country is great. We've got a, a monarch. Um, but other than that, it doesn't set my pulse racing. Um, Isabel, sorry. And your thoughts? Will you be watching? I will probably end up getting drawn into it, um, although I think there's a, a lot of distaste for making money out of f- an internal family misery. But I think a really interesting question, which I really hope is asked in this interview, is, is Prince Harry now a Republican? Uh, because the line that's been coming out over the past few days is that he wants his brother and his dad back as a family, not an institution which suggests to me that either he hasn't, he's gone through his entire life not understanding what the royal family is and what he was born into, or he actually thinks that there needs to be fundamental change of the royal family and the monarchy, and therefore, you know, does he actually believe in the institution of the monarchy? Because those comments to me would suggest that he doesn't. Now, whether that matters, given as his forthcoming autobiography is entitled He Is the Spare, is another question. But I think it would be fascinating if someone within the firm turns out to be one of its biggest opponents in terms of the actual you know the concept of of the monarchy as well we wait to see with interest thank you isabel thank you fraser and thank you for listening to coffee house shots